Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a federal appeals court ruling on Tuesday that gave the Sackler family responsible for the opioid crisis caused by their drug, OxyContin, immunity from prosecution in any future civil case in order to free up money to help address the ongoing ravages of the opioid crisis that has claimed over a million American lives. Joining us is Chris McGreal, a senior writer for The Guardian US and a former correspondent in Jerusalem and Johannesburg. He has published several articles on the opioid epidemic in America and his latest book is American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. And we will discuss how the family is able to hold on to billions, although the Sackler's liability protection does not extend to possible criminal cases. Then, with tensions rising between Serbs clashing with NATO peacekeepers in Kosovo, we will examine the role of Serbia's authoritarian leader, President Vucic, who is stirring up ethnic hatreds along with Russian provocateurs out to cause trouble for NATO, with Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov promising, quote, Serbs are fighting for their rights in northern Kosovo and a big explosion is looming in the heart of Europe. Joining us is Daniel Sowa, who is a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies Foreign Policy Institute. Previously, he was a vice president for Centers of Peacebuilding Innovation at the United States Institute for Peace. And from 1994 to 1996, he served as a U.S. Special Envoy and Coordinator for the Bosnian Federation, mediating between Croats and Muslims and negotiating the first agreement reached at the Dayton Peace Talks. He also blogs at peacefair.net. Then finally, we'll speak with Jacob Grumbach, who is an associate professor of political science at the University of Washington, whose research focuses broadly on the political economy of the United States. He is the author of Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transform State Politics, which measure the democratic quality of American states from 2000 to 2018. Using 51 indicators, including gerrymandering, he found that states dominated by Republicans over the previous two decades became substantially less democratic than states dominated by Democrats and those with a divided government. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Chris McGreal, a senior writer for The Guardian US and a former correspondent in Jerusalem and Johannesburg. He has published several articles on the opioid epidemic in America, and his latest book is American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chris McGreal. Good evening. Thank you for joining us, Chris. And could you say then that Tuesday's ruling by a federal appeals court essentially giving the Sacklers immunity from further uh, civil prosecution uh, because of the opioid crisis created by the drug OxyContin. Is that a fourth act that happened yesterday, or indeed could there be a fifth act uh, if somebody decides to sue the Sacklers uh, in criminal court? So there could be a fifth act. Uh, One potential, but I think probably unlikely, is that it could go all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, partly because there's an argument that bankruptcy law is being misapplied to protect a family rather than uh, a corporation 
from further civil suits, and that was never the intent when the law was written by Congress. Um, but uh, this law has been applied in this way previously, so um, I think that that at this stage now seems unlikely. It seems on the civil side of it, probably the Sackler family's won. Uh, but the criminal thing is a completely different matter. Uh, this offers them no protection whatsoever from criminal prosecution. We know that um, the, uh, the various authorities are looking into the Sacklers, particularly the, the Massachusetts uh, Attorney General. Uh, Massachusetts is very badly hit by the opioid epidemic. And Purdue Pharma, the company responsible, was based uh, up there. And I think that um, there's certainly individual Sacklers, probably uh, Dr. Richard Sackler, who was the chair of the board and who implemented a lot of the policies that led to uh, the mass uh, misuse of OxyContin, um, would be one of those who would be very closely uh, looked at by uh, the authorities for any potential criminal action. But the Sacklers filed for bankruptcy of their company, Purdue Pharma that produced OxyContin. They filed for bankruptcy in 2019 at the time that when there was an avalanche of lawsuits. But prior to that, my understanding is that the Sacklers essentially <laughs> emptied out the coffers of the company, uh, billions and billions they pocketed. And then in 2019, this massive settlement was uh, essentially put together after the bankruptcy. But then a judge in 2021 uh, found that the Sacklers, who didn't file for bankruptcy themselves, couldn't be protected from liability, and that's held up the settlement. So it's been the pressure from the victims to get the settlement that's essentially, has that been exploited by the Sackler family? Yes, so the victims have been divided. There have been groups who say, listen, let's just get this settled so that we can get the money, basically. Uh, there are other groups, which include something called the U.S. trustee, which is a, a formal government position, uh, who've said, no, this is uh, an abusive process. Um, but it is, as you say, so when it looked like there was going to be some kind of legal accountability um, and financial accountability by their company, the family-owned company, Purdue Pharma, you start seeing money moved out of Purdue Pharma and into the family's coffers. And what is highly unusual about this is that then when Purdue Pharma, essentially as part of the, of, of the process of settling the lawsuits, uh, is moved into bankruptcy and the family gives up actually ownership eventually of Purdue Pharma, they then uh, seek what they've now got, which is that the bankruptcy protection also protects the family, which has taken the money out and which were the owners. And it seems really, you know, to a lot of people, a very strange thing that, that a company can go bankrupt and it, it, it the, the family that's taken the money out also is protected by that bankruptcy and also from further legal uh, action. So that's what has led some to say, listen, um, this is simply wrong. Uh, now, the, the 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 family itself, uh, the Sacklers, are making a payment. It's one point seven billion dollars. Um, some, you know, there's there's rough calculations for how much they've made out of uh, out of OxyContin, uh, but it's definitely in the billions. Uh, this money will be payable over a period of time, and critics of the deal say actually. It's really just a small proportion of the overall profits that they've made from OxyContin. And in any case, by paying it over time, they're simply really all they'll be doing is, is handing over uh, additional profits on top of you know what they make from the money they've already got. So they'll, they'll continue to hold on to that core profit that they made in the first place. Well, the judge, Eunice Lee of the... Uh United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, uh, in uh, writing her opinion yesterday, Tuesday, she said that because of the defining characteristics of bankruptcy, total satisfaction of all that is owed, whether in money or in justice, rarely occurs. So I imagine the hundreds of thousands of victims, the families of the victims who've lost uh, loved ones would agree with that. Yes, they would. Uh, and as I say, they're divided on this. There are some who think, let's just get the money out there. Let's take what we can, get it out there. 
Um, you know, a lot of this is going to individual states for programs to help those who've become a bit addicted. Um, uh, a quite small proportion is actually going directly to the families of those who've who've died. Um, but I think that for others, and I know this because they they they're quite vocal about it. They you know they they're quite angry that the what the people that they describe as drug dealers in white suits and in Gucci suits or whatever um, say that um, uh, say that they you know they've essentially um, become uh, they profited they've hung on to the profits of their their what you know you can you can say was legal drug dealing at the time. Well, what is the toll, do you know, Chris? I mean, it continues because just last year, 110,000 Americans died from drug overdoses. Now, a lot of that was uh, from fentanyl. But my understanding is that uh, the Purdue Farmers OxyContin, which is the company that's owned by the Sacklers, which from which they extracted an enormous amount of money and are now getting civil immunity from lawsuits, it was a sort of a gateway drug, wasn't it? It, it was prescribed as a painkiller, but then people got hooked on it. And if they couldn't get any more prescriptions filled, they then turned to heroin. And of course, heroin, to some extent, has been replaced by fentanyl. So is that a sketch of what happened? Yes. I mean, we're well over, we're well past the million mark now uh, in the number of people who've died from opioid overdoses in some form or other over the past couple of decades. And it was indeed OxyContin that kicked open the door. Um, it was missold by Purdue Pharma, and this is one of the reasons they've been so liable. It was missold as an everyday painkiller. Um, and the key element in misselling it was to say that it was more effective and less addictive than regular opioids. Um, and that was a way of getting doctors to prescribe it um, safer and more more effective, and it, it was neither. And because of the, the 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 thing that defined OxyContin was that it was a very high dosage opioid. Um, it, it was ten times or more as powerful as the more regular um, opioid painkillers that had been prescribed. And uh, although people took it less frequently, you 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 took it twice a day, uh, every twelve hours on paper. Um, compared to taking every two or three hours, um, the very high dosage uh, meant that people were actually getting a really big kick of the opioid when they took a pill. And in fact, that contributed to increased uh, addiction, uh, the likelihood of addiction. So far from being safer, actually, it's more dangerous. It was also untrue to say it was more effective. It, it actually wore off quicker. So people, were instead of taking it twice, were taking it three times a day, which meant that their overall intake of opioid was actually higher than if they'd been on the, the weaker pills. And perhaps the, the biggest mis-selling of it was that you know, opioids had largely, and particularly very powerful ones, had largely been restricted to end-of-life care, people who had cancer, um, people, to be honest, in whom it didn't really matter if they became uh, hooked. Um, this drug was missold as being could be used for every every kind of pain treatment. It, it it the slogan of the company was the drug to begin with and the drug to stay with. So it was being prescribed for everyday back pain. It was for arthritis, for things for long term chronic uh, uh, treatment uh, that it should never really have been used for. And so that created the whole pool of initial pool of addiction, which then grew, as you said. Um, into the it morphed into the heroin and subsequently the fentanyl epidemic. But a million casualties, Chris. I mean, that's pretty much. We had about a million casualties from COVID, and you know you can probably lay a lot of that at Trump's doorstep. But this this family is responsible, is it not, for a million deaths? And that seems extraordinary. I mean, that's you know more than the casualties in America's wars. Well, it is an extraordinary figure. And I think one of the things that's more extraordinary is that it really the lessons of it haven't been learned. Certainly the the, the Sacklers themselves do not take responsibility. They they offer apologies, but if you if you look closely at those or apologies, they are uh usually blame the victim. They're usually apologizing that the drug has been misused or 
for some roundabout uh, way of, of avoiding direct responsibility and for admitting that they pushed this very powerful drug out there to people who didn't need it, all, all just to make money. They've never really faced up to that. Um, and I think more broadly, I don't really think that the kind of American medical system and the regulatory system, including the Food and Drug Administration, have really faced up to their responsibility for allowing this to happen and allowing it to continue for quite a long time. Um, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that uh, no other country has this scale of an opioid epidemic. No, no other country had uh, mass addiction to these pr prescription painkillers in this way over this period of time. Uh, and that's because every other country, um, you know, regulated these very powerful drugs and used them much more carefully. So you mentioned Richard Sackler is, could well be liable in a criminal suit. The founders of the company, the brothers Mortimer Sackler and Raymond Sackler, are both deceased. How many uh, of the Sackler families are left to enjoy the many billions that they have? Oh well, there are you know children and grandchildren, and the money's been spread around. I I wouldn't I would I wouldn't be able to tell you, but really there there are three branches to the Sackler family divided between the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, and two of those branches really benefit. Um, you know, so I think we'd be talking about a few dozen people here um, uh, from the profits of OxyContin. The third part of the family uh, is the um, is the part that's actually they're up from Arthur Sackler, the older brother who created the whole thing in the first place, the, the whole uh, Sackler drug business. It, and he made his money off Valium uh, and essentially mis, misprescribing that and mis, mis-selling Valium for things it really shouldn't have been used for. Um, and, you know, that in the end actually provided the model for mis-selling OxyContin. Uh, so... All in all, I think the Sacklers have done quite well out of uh, getting people to take drugs they don't need to take. And they, of course, had a propensity to put their names on buildings in exchange for charitable contributions to museums and opera houses and whatever. That, I mean, I don't know whether you can shame the shameless, but to some extent, there's been some certainly blowback there. And people, the names have been stripped off lots and lots of buildings, have they not? Yes, they have. Um, almost all the major museums and other kind of public buildings that um, took money from the Sacklers and put put it on their uh, name, their galleries, etc. And the wings. Yeah, uh, the British Museum, I think, fairly recently, uh, you know, obviously the Met in New York, uh, but plenty of other museums, uh, medical institutions. Yeah, they've all taken it down. Um, and one of the one of the kind of I don't know, asides, it perhaps tells you something about the way the Sacklers think, is that they think they're victims in all of this, that they, you know, that they feel that they're being unfairly pursued. I know this because I get letters periodically from their lawyers um, uh, uh, complaining that uh, they are they are being victimised by the press and by uh, the public. And I'm sorry, I'm trying to figure out what, why do they think this? Have, do they give any excuses beyond complaining? I think they feel that they are being unfairly blamed for uh, an epidemic that is not their cause, they didn't cause. Their, their central argument is that the that OxyContin was misused by those who became addicted to it. Richard Sackler made this uh, quite clear in an infamous uh, exchange in in which he blamed uh, people uh, who became addicted to OxyContin um, for their own addiction. Um, and that, I mean, he, and he blamed them as criminals. This was one of the, the tricks uh, that uh, Purdue Farmer and the Sacklers used in, in trying to excuse themselves responsibility was that, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, people became addicted to OxyContin by prescription then they couldn't get it anymore because either they the doctors wouldn't prescribe it or, as often happens with opioids, your tolerance increases. So you need more bigger doses in order to continue to uh, have the effect. And eventually they just couldn't get enough by prescription. So then they would turn to the black market and buy it illegally or they buy heroin. And 
essentially that that's the point at which many of those who've become addicted you know uh, start uh, committing crimes they're they're buying an illegal drug or or and they they are as were you know uh, they're, they're tagged as addicts at that point um and richard sackler made quite clear that he regarded because they've gone down that path because they've broken the law and bought illegal drugs that that was evidence of their kind of moral shortcomings and how um how they were to blame for their own addiction without actually saying, well, how did this all begin? Well, now you've got me all riled up. <laughs> I thank you for joining us, uh, Chris McGreal. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Chris McGreal, who's a senior writer for The Guardian US and a former correspondent in Jerusalem and Johannesburg. He has published several articles on the opioid epidemic in America, and his latest book is American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into tensions between Serbs clashing with NATO peacekeepers in Kosovo and the extent to which Serbia is authoritarian leader along with Russian provocateurs are stirring up trouble for NATO with Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov promising that Serbs are fighting for their rights in northern Kosovo and a big explosion is looming in the heart of Europe. The scream of the ambulance is sounding in my ear Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Daniel Sower, who is a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies Foreign Policy Institute. Previously, he was the vice president for Centers of Peacebuilding Innovation at the United States Institute of Peace. And from 1994 to 1996, he served as a U.S. special envoy and coordinator for the Bosnian Federation, mediating between Croats and Muslims and negotiating the first agreement reached in the Dayton Peace Accords. And he blogs at peacefair.net. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Sowa. It's a pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us, Daniel. And what do you make of this uptick in tensions with rising tensions in Kosovo, clashes between ethnic Serbs and NATO soldiers that have been going on now for several days, a number of injuries, and what's behind it? What's behind it is the unsolved problems remaining from 1999, the last war, uh, when Serbia remained essentially in control of northern Kosovo, even though Kosovo uh, became first a UN protectorate and then an independent state. So is this then, if it's a residue of an old battle that hasn't been resolved, NATO peacekeepers are still there. Are they sufficient to keep the peace? I think they're sufficient to keep the peace if uh, things don't escalate to a real military level. Uh, The Serbian army has been put on alert, uh, has been deployed at least partly to the border between Kosovo and Serbia, and that concerns me, but I think they are unlikely to cross. And what about the Kosovo army? It's no match, is it, right? It's no match. It's still in formation, really. We prevented Kosovo from forming an army for quite a few years after the war, but it has now had what it calls the Kosovo Security Forces for a number of years, and and that force is being built uh, with the intention of becoming a NATO army sometime after 2027. So in terms of the NATO deployment, though, my understanding is that they're sending, NATO's sending 700 reserve troops and 
do they have something like 3,800 troops before the conflict erupted here? I would say that's about the right number. What it is on any given day goes up and down, how they count changes a little bit, but it's in the few thousands now. Clearly not sufficient to face off against the Serbian army, but more than sufficient to deal with uh, civilian unrest if it's deployed correctly with the right equipment and with the right instructions. So what's at the heart of the Serbian nationalists who live in Kosovo, who feel loyal not to the local government but to Belgrade, and who are now creating these confrontations and clashes with NATO peacekeepers? What is their agenda? Their agenda is to remain citizens of Serbia and to have uh, their part of Kosovo become part of Serbia. But I wouldn't attribute everything that's happened to the everyday inhabitants of northern Kosovo. The demonstrations last Friday were the peaceful demonstrations and were clearly by local people. The demonstrations on Monday, which uh, undertook violence against KFOR, were just as clearly people who had been sent by Belgrade to make trouble. Well, so far, 30 NATO peacekeepers have been injured. That includes 19 Italians and 11 Hungarians. And what's your sense, though, Daniel? Is this going to escalate? I mean, what's who's stirring up the pot here? Well, uh, you know, you can assign blame wherever you like because it's an escalatory ladder and it depends on where you start your escalatory ladder. But the Serbs decided to boycott municipal elections. I regard that as the beginning of the current escalatory ladder. The uh, And they withdrew all of their officials from the Kosovo administrative structures. Uh, the Kosovars uh, had, schedule, had scheduled elections and uh, went ahead with them. The Serbs boycotted. The uh, boycott meant that four Albanians were elected as mayors in the four Serb-majority northern municipalities. Mind you, there are quite a few other Serb municipalities in Kosovo where things have remained uh, pretty calm and where, frankly, uh, people wouldn't indulge in violence against the authorities. But... The Serbs, including their leader, President Vucic, he claims that Kosovo is the heart of Serbia. And that, by the way, is pretty much similar to what the tennis star Djokovic wrote on the the camera at the French Open, which has caused a bit of a flap amongst tennis authorities. So what is this idea that, that Kosovo is the heart of Serbia? Well, uh, the Serbian state traces its origins to the Serbian church in Kosovo in the Middle Ages, basically. And uh, there's some truth in that. And, of course, uh, there's some other facts that need to be remembered, including the fact that there were Albanians who also lived in Kosovo. Even at that time, the Albanians... uh, were actually not Muslimized yet. They were uh, a tribal group uh, when the Serbian church was being established in Kosovo. But Serbs have left Kosovo, especially in the last 50 to 100 years. They've left Kosovo mainly, I think, for economic reasons, some for political reasons, some because of fear of the Albanian majority, Uh, You know, populations change. Uh, But it was the Milosevic regime's military campaign against the civilians of Kosovo that created conditions for Kosovo's independence. I mean, half the people in Kosovo were chased not only out of their homes, but out of the country, out of what was then a province. And, uh, you know, that's... NATO intervened to prevent that from continuing and imposed uh, eventually a UN protectorate. So I regard 
Serbian sovereignty over Kosovo has lost because of the Milosevic behavior. There's no real possibility of reintegrating the 1.7 million Albanians into Serbia. They will never again accept being governed by Serbia. The Serbs are saying, well, that's the same thing for our northern municipalities. We won't accept being governed from Pristina, and Belgrade is backing them. That's the problem, the Belgrade backing. And, uh, you know, the Americans have grown very soft on Serbia. They've essentially decided that their priority is to win Serbia for the West. And that means uh, going very, very soft on uh, President Fucic, who de facto has become an elected authoritarian in, uh, in Serbia. And uh, they've been backing the Americans and Europeans, have basically been backing Belgrade in the most recent flare-up. Well, you know, going back to 1999, NATO had a 78-day bombing campaign to drive the Serbs out of Kosovo, and the Serbs had engaged in brutal mistreatment of ethnic Albanians in uh, Kosovo. And now you have, as you've just pointed out, Daniel, that uh, the U.S. Is, is has good relations or wants to have better relations with Serbia. Now, Serbia, of course did vote in favor of a UN resolution condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But since then, Serbia has refused to join in sanctions imposed on Moscow by the US and NATO. And then just on Monday, Foreign Minister Lavrov of Russia, in a visit to Kenya, said that the Serbs are fighting for their rights in northern Kosovo And he went on to say, a big explosion is looming in the heart of Europe. So could the Russians, are they engaging in mischief there? Or are they they encouraging what Lavrov is saying is is a coming big explosion? Short answer is yes. They're certainly encouraging it. Uh, they, They want to make as much trouble for NATO and the EU in the Balkans as possible. And after all, you know, Putin claimed that Kiev is the heart of Russia as well. And so if they can achieve an actual partition in Kosovo, uh, they would hope that that would be precedent for their holding on to Donbass and Crimea, for example. So, yes, from the Russian point of view, the Serbs are doing the right thing. And uh, I have no doubt at all but that uh, the Russian and Serbian security forces are collaborating in, in, um, in what's happening in, in the north of Kosovo. The interior minister of Serbia was in Moscow recently getting his instructions, and uh, that's what we're up against. Uh, but the Americans have continued to follow an appeasement policy rather than... Uh, rather than crack down and say, look, you have to make a real break with Moscow. Right, but there seems to be more of an incentive for Russia to stir up trouble and start a new front in a war in Kosovo and and Serbia to distract or tie down NATO uh, from the war in Ukraine, which has become a NATO war. Well, it's not a NATO war in the sense of NATO forces being exactly, engaged but, there. but in terms of support. And, and yeah. So in, ter- in terms of actual personnel, the draw of NATO forces for Kosovo is not a major issue. There are some non-NATO forces in Kosovo as well. The mission is NATO-led. And I would say, you know, the way to think about this is uh, if Ukraine wins in Ukraine, uh, Kosovo is more likely to win in Kosovo. If Ukraine were to lose uh, in Ukraine and lose Donbass and Crimea, I think the precedent for partition of Kosovo would uh, would rise to the very top of Russia's priorities. But does the U.S. just in closing, do they see that this is at stake? You, you're saying that they're they're trying to make nice to Serbia, and they're kind of blind to Russia and Serbia's intentions. 
I think they're blind. I think they've made a miscalculation, and they are stuck with it. They need to reevaluate. And that means what? Uh, bolstering the peacekeeping, trying to stop a, a, a war? Just in closing, what would you recommend? Well, I think it means uh, recognizing that Serbia is lost to the West, at least as long as Vucic remains president. And that the Americans have to back their real ally, which is Kosovo. And backing Kosovo means, yes, providing sufficient peacekeeping troops and making sure that the constitutional order of Kosovo exists on all the territory and getting the Serbian secret services and Russian agents out. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Daniel Sowa. It's a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Serwer, who is a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies Foreign Policy Institute, and previously he was the Vice President for the Centers of Peacekeeping Innovation at the United States Institute of Peace, and from 1994 to 1996 he served as a U.S. Special Envoy and Coordinator for the Bosnian Federation, mediating between Croats and Muslims and negotiating the first agreement reached at the Dayton Peace Accords. And he blogs at peacefair.net. We're going to take a recession break and back looking into how states dominated by Republicans over the previous two decades have become substantially less democratic than states dominated by Democrats and those with a divided government. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jacob Grumbach, who is an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington, whose research focuses broadly on the political economy of the United States, with particular interest in public policy, American federalism, racial and economic inequality, campaign finance, and statistical methods. And he's the author of Laboratories Against Democracy. How National Parties Transformed State Politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jake Grumbach. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Jake. And, and when you the title says that Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transformed State Politics, it's not a plague on both their houses, right? It's pretty clear that on the Republican side of the state legislatures, there's been a growth of authoritarianism. So this is an important question, Ian. So uh, in the book, I show that when it comes to uh, the nationalization of American politics at the state level, so state governments really taking on uh, uh, new and important policymaking powers and red states diverging from blue states in issue areas like gun control, climate and environmental policy, abortion rights and abortion policy, taxation, labor relations, and so forth. That is actually both parties where Republican states have really innovated new ways to restrict abortion, whereas Democratic states have innovated new ways to uh, provide new access to uh, abortion and reproductive uh, health care. So uh, in many of these areas, there is a sort of uh, symmetric divergence between red and blue states. But like you suggested, when it comes to Democratic institutions themselves, uh, electoral policy and election administration, uh, gerrymandering in terms of legislative districting uh, uh, and responsiveness to public opinion, do, does state policy really respond to the attitudes and preferences of the state's residents? It is true that Republican states, on average, have engaged in Democratic backsliding over the past couple of decades, uh, really weakening voting rights and making legislative districts more imbalanced across parties. So in your book, laboratories against democracy. You covered the democratic quality of American states from 2000 to 2018 and you used 51 indicators and you mentioned some of them like gerrymandering, uh, etc. And you found that states dominated by Republicans over the previous two decades became substantially less democratic, whereas states dominated by Democrats 
and those with a divided government saw no such drop-off. That's a, is that a brief summary? That's, no, that's exactly right. And uh, so I use 51 different indicators across the states, whether a state has automatic voter registration or same-day voter registration, where you can register in person at the polling place. How long, on average, does it take to wait in line to vote in person? Does a state have no-fault absentee or mail balloting systems? as well as sort of election security measures. Do states do uh, post-election audits? Um, do they have online voter registration? As well as the uh, measures of the fairness of legislative districting, which really tells, do voters across the parties have an equal voice in setting a state legislative majority? Or do some uh, voters sort of have an outside power to set that legislative majority. And across those 51 indicators, I use statistical modeling to create this measure, the state democracy index. And the results of that index are exactly as you said, uh, where over the past 20 years, we have seen um, some strong democratic backsliding in red states, whereas purple and blue states have remained pretty consistent. And uh, this is really important because states in the U.S. federal system really have overwhelming authority over those democratic institutions like voting and districting, whereas in other countries, it tends to be the national government that controls those institutions. Well, there seems to be an asymmetry between the Democrats and the Republicans in the sense that Democratic donors, and a lot of them uh, operate out here in uh, Los Angeles and California, which is often referred to as the ATM for the Democrats, they tend, I guess it's maybe here in Hollywood, <laughs> it's because of the movie business, they tend to go for the stars, they invest in the presidency, and they don't necessarily go down ballot and particularly invest in state races. I recall when uh, President Obama got elected in 2008, shortly thereafter in 2010, there was a massive change at, at the state level. A lot of the strategy was Karl Rove's, uh, funded by the American Petroleum Institute and other right-wing oligarchs like the Koch brothers. And it seems that that's when this strategy of involving ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, and investing in state races to take over the states, which now a lot of the Republican control of these states are supermajorities. So would you trace that back to 2010, uh, Jacob? Absolutely. 2010 is an incredibly important election, a midterm election, the first midterm election under Obama and the rise of the Tea Party uh, within the sort of Republican coalition that was really motiv motivated by an anti-immigration politics. And they ousted uh, a number of Republicans who uh, in Congress who were already quite conservative, but then ushered in a new wave of really hardline anti-immigration Republicans at the federal level. But in the states, the wave election ushering in dozens of new Republican-controlled states in historically purple or blue states like Wisconsin and North Carolina. That was an extremely consequential election because it was also a redistricting year. The census every 10 years allows states to redraw their districts as populations shift. And what happened was uh, uh, these Republican-controlled states really innovated in uh, really setting new records in terms of the partisan imbalance that they uh, drew those legislative districts to advantage the Republican Party. So you got places like Wisconsin and subsequent elections like in 2018, where majorities of Wisconsinites vote for Democratic candidates, but the state legislative majority remains supermajority Republican because of that gerrymandering. And that then has consequences for public policy at the state level where, again, a case like Wisconsin's interesting where it's really moved to restrict or outright ban abortion, whereas Wisconsin's a very pro-choice state in the mass public. But that pro-choice majority cannot set, they're clustered in uh, the urban areas of Wisconsin and are sort of gerrymandered out of power. So they really don't have much say over the state legislative majority that changes state policy. So 2010 is absolutely crucial. You also mentioned long-term investments in state-level policymaking by groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council. And this is a, another crucial point because state legislatures don't have uh, much in the way of policymaking resources. It's not like Congress where they have a, you know, a ton of staffers and 
a bunch of groups and experts and lawyers that are helping to draft public policy at the state level in many states you have to you know to be a state legislator you get paid a very low salary you go into the state legislature to work you know only a few weeks out of the year and then you keep your regular job so groups like alec that can help state legislators draft new bills and spread those model bills across states are really important in uh, explaining why states became more aggressive in passing these uh, sort of dramatic public policy changes. So the American Legislative Exchange Council is well known for uh, passing, uh, for drafting and helping to pass stand your ground gun laws, which swept across red states in the 90s and 2000s, for example, and has only continued to do uh, uh, sort of national waves of state policy of that sort. So, Jake, let's look into this disconnect then between the majority of Americans being in favor of a woman's right to choose and bodily autonomy and against the recent Supreme Court decision and all of these decisions coming down at the, at the state level where they seem to be in a competition to ban abortions at, at an earlier time. And then you've got what we witnessed in, in the state of uh, Tennessee, the showdown with the, uh, particularly these really charismatic young African-American lawmakers being booted out and then reinstated, and now they're having to run again. But so there is a disconnect between the broader electorate's rejection of these anti-abortion laws and their opposition to the proliferation of guns and open carry, etc. So how, how do you explain the uh, that disconnect between right. the broader political trends and what is, in, in effect, a tyranny of the minority at the state level, even Absolutely. though they have sober majorities. Right. So, uh, you know, along with another political scientist, Chris Warshaw, I wrote a couple of pieces in Politico and the Washington Post about abortion policy and public opinion specifically. And uh, this is a really important policy area where nationally about 61 percent of Americans support uh, a woman's right to choose and are pro-choice. Um, the Dobbs decision uh, by the Supreme Court does what many Supreme Court decisions recently have done and have enabled states to do more aggressive policymaking. And that is the Supreme Court decided that states can have more leeway once again to change policy. In this, in this particular decision, it was the leeway to fully ban abortion. And what happened is many red states moved extremely quickly to ban abortion, uh, despite most of those red states having pro-choice majorities of the mass public. So in part, these states uh, and Republican state uh, governments are responding to long-term investments by anti-abortion activists that have been really active in uh, uh, setting the judiciary at the federal level and getting a, a conservative Supreme Court majority. That was a huge victory for them. And then as well as the state level, this is goes back to the 70s and 80s after Roe v. Wade of using uh, new tactics like direct mail and really important sort of intense activism. Uh, so that's part of it is the result of that activism. And then another part is that, unfortunately, you mentioned, uh, you know, many Los Angeles residents who donate, you know, to national political races, famous, you know, Senate races or, you know, presidential races and things like that. But nationally, we don't have much attention as American voters and the mass public on state level politics. We're much more engaged in the national red versus blue tug of war and national culture war issues. But abortion has become one. And I would say in the 2022 election, there was some backlash to the Dobbs decision and states moving to ban abortion, where we even saw referenda in very conservative states like Kansas, where majorities in a ballot initiative said we will not ban abortion in this state, despite the state being heavily evangelical and so forth. So there's some backlash to that. But even so, it's still true that at the state level, there is a disconnect between public opinion and public policy, and that uh, this is occurring as uh, especially red states move for more aggressively conservative policy uh, enabled in part by the Supreme Court. So, Jake, did the Democratic Party then learn the wrong lesson from the wipeout in 2010 in the sense that they still haven't really invested in state races and they, the focus is still on choosing 
the next president as though you were casting a movie. That seems to be the mentality still. And the result has been at the state level that the Democrats, the Democratic minority, have tried to be sort of Republican light because they figure that's the only way to hold on to power. Whereas these young lawmakers in Tennessee seem to be indicating a different strategy, which is if you really stand up for the Democratic Party values in terms of being in favor of women's bodily autonomy and against the proliferation of guns, particularly military-style weapons that can kill a whole bunch of school kids in, in a short period of time. It seems to me that that is a change underway, or am I? is this wishful thinking on my part? Great questions. Um, first is that uh, it is true over the long term, the Republican Party and really conservative voters and activists and donors have been more attentive to state-level politics than have sort of liberals, urbanites, uh, and the Democratic Party coalition at large. So that's partially demographic where, uh, you know, I look statistically in my book, Laboratories Against Democracy, you do see that donors to state level politics tend to be older, wealthier, whiter, and tend to be uh, long term homeowners in a given area. So the Democratic constituency, which is, you know, features younger people, a more racially diverse constituency, uh, and more urbanites, uh, and more renters, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, homes, all of that demographically means Democrats are going to be more focused at the national level, and they're going to turn out less in midterm elections. Uh, but that's changing a little as youth turnout over the past decade has really improved. It's still quite low. But uh, 2018 and 2022 were really outstandingly high turnout years for midterm elections for young people, for example. So this is changing a bit. Um, there's also, after 2010, been some learning uh, that really when you lose a lot of state governments, that allows uh, a party to gerrymander or change uh, how easy it is to vote. And that has downstream consequences for, you know, the Democratic Party ever winning these states back. So it's really hard to win in Wisconsin. You know, a bare Republican legislative majority really heavily gerrymandered the state to the point where it's really, really hard. You need really upwards of 60-something, 70% Democratic vote statewide to just get a majority in the state legislature. So that's a really, really tough thing to do. So this is all a little bit of learning about the importance of the state level on the Democratic side, but, you know, a little late. And then finally, uh, in terms of uh, being more aggressive around partisan goals, it's true that when it comes to norm erosion, so legislative norms in politics, like do you, uh, for example, uh, aggressively fight to take a Supreme Court seat, uh, you know, when there's an out party president, as was the case uh, under the end of the Obama administration, or do you pass policies at the national level uh, to change democratic institutions or even at the state level? So Democrats have become a bit more aggressive in the agenda proposing democracy reforms to potentially ban gerrymandering nationwide and say no state can really advantage one party over the other so heavily in drawing their districts or having national voter registration or other voting policies. All of those things did come onto the agenda but didn't pass. But I think it's trending in that direction where I do think next Democratic congressional majority uh, will be likely to pass some of these democracy reforms. And lastly, when only one party is heavily gerrymandering and the other party does not gerrymander, then there's no real incentive for the party that's gerrymandering to stop it. So ironically, if the Democrats got more aggressive in sort of bending the rules to their favor, then the Republicans uh, would come along and say, you know, maybe passing rules that neither of us can bend the rules would, uh, you know, be a better situation for everybody involved. That can only really, you know, get bipartisan support if both parties are sort of equally uh, tilting the playing field in their favor. And so far, Democrats have not moved as aggressively in the states uh, to do those sorts of things. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Jake, what strategies would you suggest that the Democrats could employ since they've got to do a heavy lift? I thought the statistic was that the Democrats nationwide have to get 
8% more votes than the Republicans just to break even. But you just pointed out how in the states of Wisconsin, et cetera, it's, it's more like 10 and 12%. Yeah, so that actually changes. It's true for the most part because Democrats are more clustered in urban areas uh, that Democrats do need more aggregate votes to get the same number of seats in uh, in Congress or the uh, Senate, depending on big states and small states, because many uh, you know Republican voters are in these small population states. All this is true, plus the Electoral College has given uh, the Republicans two presidencies in the last couple of decades uh, you know, without winning the popular vote. All of that's true, that the institutional structure of the Constitution really, at this current uh, sort of geographic uh, distribution of people in the country, really does favor Republicans. But that is changing little by little over time. And demographically, it's really crucial to see that millennials and Gen Z, they are not becoming more conservative or Republican as they age. They're you know, everybody gets a little more conservative and Republican on, on average as they age. But these generations are staying highly Democratic. And in a new paper uh, with my co-author, Adam Bonica from Stanford, we show that millennials and Gen Z, uh, you know, ever just tiny, tiny numbers of them, fewer than 9% of them donate at all to Republicans and over 90% donate to Democrats. So this is a, it is a demographic shift over time, but Democrats should not sort of rest easy on that fact. Uh, other things need to happen to increase support for small d democracy in the U.S. Um, and I think one of the most underemphasized things uh, and sort of issue in policy areas is in labor relations and labor unions. So it turns out that labor unions in the U.S., which have always been weaker than in Europe, really did help produce the middle class and economic equality. But they also, I've found in research with Paul Freimer and in other research, that labor unions actually helped workers be uh, sort of avoid culture war politics and, uh, you know, support democratic institutions and multiracial democracy. So avoiding this deep culture war we now see uh, where there's sort of a burn it all down uh, kind of extreme culture war going on, um, especially when it comes to, I guess, Trumpism and right-wing populism. Uh, all of that, I think, is could be made a bit healthier in American politics through the expansion of labor unions, which give uh, ordinary Americans and workers a connection to public policy and their material outcomes for their family, like the minimum wage, health insurance, and so forth, rather than just fighting over these national battles over uh, sort of the culture and direction of the country. Well, Jacob Grumbach, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. And again, I'll be speaking with Jacob Grumbach, who is a, an associate professor of political science at the University of Washington, whose research focuses broadly on the political economy of the United States, with particular interest in public policy, American federalism, racial and economic inequality, campaign finance, and statistical methods. And he's the author of Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transformed State Politics. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past